0: We come back today to look at uh, this section one more time in Romans 14 that deals with divisions and quarrels that had risen within the Roman church over issues of conscience. We talked about them over the last couple of weeks. These had to do in in those days with disputes about what kinds of foods you can eat and which uh, days you should set aside, Sabbath days and food laws. And people had differing views and they had a hard time accepting one another within the fellowship of the body of Christ. And so Paul writes this chapter, he writes this chapter in the first couple of verses really of chapter 15 to help them lift their minds, if you will, off of the particulars of all of their positions and their arguments and remind them of the mandate that they have within the gospel of Christ to accept one another. And this is his exhortation from the very beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14 to accept one another and all the way at the very end, chapter 15, verse 7, to receive them, to welcome them, to accept them. The same word, just as Christ had received them. Accept one another. Maintain fellowship with one another. And all of this really, as we said, is an extension of his call in verse twelve, chapter 12, verse 1, to respond to the mercies of God. In in view of the mercies of God, this is the way that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. This is the way that you prove out the acceptable and perfect will of God. In God's kindness, in God's mercy, He sought us out. He demonstrated to us His love in that while we were still sinners, He died for us. And how much more then should we even when we are at odds with our brothers, extend the same kind of grace and mercy. Paul Paul spent uh, 11 chapters really laying out the firmest foundation for us of our understanding of how Christ offers us mercy and grace and freedom from sin, forgiveness, new life, all of those things. And then beginning in chapter 12, built on all the riches of that knowledge of God's mercy to call us as a body, as a as a, a, brothers, a group of brothers and sisters in Christ, to call us to respond to one another with that same kind of grace. And so now, at the beginning of chapter 14, he gives us this command, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, accept him. Not to quarrel over opinions, but to bring him into your fellowship as with Christ. Now, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks about how can you do that. How can that happen when you have such strong opinions that divide believers, when you have such strong convictions, we might even say, when you have such issues of conscience that cause such grief and pain, such hurt and hard feelings, how do you do that? How in the world can people with so many differences still find a way to accept, to receive, to welcome one another in Christian unity and love? Well, Paul lays out for us, a number of, we might say, principles to help us do that. And we've been looking at these. First of all, in the first couple of verses, he he tells us very simply, don't look down on those who don't have the same freedom of conscience as you. Don't look down on those who who might be more strict in some area. He says, the person who believes he may eat... Uh, um, the person, one person believes he may eat anything, while another person believes he eats only vegetables... Some people have freedom, some people don't. But he says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Don't, don't look down on those who have more strict consciences or, or uh, more difficulty in these areas of freedom than you do. And secondly, to those who, who do have the strict consciences, he tells them in verse 3, Don't judge those who have freedom. Second half of verse 3 there, Let not the one who abstains Pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Because God has welcomed him. I mean, what place do you have to reject him? What place do you have to spurn fellowship with him? When God is the very one who has demonstrated his willingness to accept him. So no matter how convinced you are in your own mind, Paul wants you to recognize that it is not you who is making the standards by which this person is to judge. In fact, it's not even your place to judge them. But you leave that into the hands of God. As he goes on to say, it's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he'll be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God's the one who will judge him. And as he judges him, he'll extend to him the grace that he gives even to you to make him stand. Which really highlights the third principle that we talked about. Remember, he says, how God has accepted you. You. That's what he says at the end of verse 13. Uh, he reminds us of perhaps the most important issue in all of this. God has welcomed these brothers, these sisters. I mean, in, every, in all the quarrels and all the debates and all the differences and all the things that divide, that's the one thing you can't forget. That, that, that God has received them as a brother and sister in Christ. And so what grounds do you have to... To turn away from them? What basis do you have to separate from them? If God's patient with the weak, then we need to be patient with the weak. If God accepts those who are free because of Christ, we need to accept those who are free. So the issue in the end is not who has more knowledge. The issue in the end is not who can win an argument proving their point. The issue is, who can demonstrate the grace and the love of the gospel in a way that they have received that grace and love? And that's the foundation of all the unity Paul talks about. Fourthly, we mentioned last week, recognize that others who are participating or abstaining in whatever the issue is, recognize that others who are participating and abstaining are doing so for the glory of God. God. Particularly in verse 6, Paul reminds us the one who observes a day, observes it in honor to the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So this is the starting point, is to recognize that even those who differ with you, no matter what track they're following on, they may very well be following that track with all sincerity to Christ. They may not agree with you, they may not follow the same level of conviction or the same kind of convictions you have, but in the expression of their conviction, whether it is free or whether it is tight, whether it is whether it is strict or whether it is loose, whatever it is, he says they may be following that in their heart dedicated to the Lord. Even if they're wrong on the issue, it doesn't mean that their devotion isn't right. So we recognize that they might observe a day that's not necessary for them to observe and they observe it in honor to the Lord. That they might, they might be free to eat something they shouldn't eat and yet they eat it with thanksgiving in their heart to the Lord. They go out and they do some activity. They participate in something and they're doing it with, with joy in their heart to the Lord and their devotion is square squarely centered on Him. In fact, as we said last week, they although being wrong on the issue doctrinally, may actually be closer in devotion than even you are. If your issues of freedom have become opportunities for the flesh. Those brothers and sisters then, Paul says, recognize they recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life and that they're seeking to honor Him and accept one another, welcome one another, because God has accepted you And because these brothers are seeking to honor Him. Then fifth, we mention, remember that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Why do you judge, He says? Don't you understand that you'll give an account? As much as they will, you'll give an account of your judgmental, dismissive attitude, you'll stand before God and give an account of that. As James says, and judgment will be without mercy to the one who has no mercy. Which is just another way of saying that the one who in the end can show no mercy towards his brother or sister demonstrates that he's never learned the mercy of the gospel to begin with. Now with all of those principles behind us, this morning we want to wrap up this section by looking at three more very Uh, Very important principles when it comes to this issue of conscience. Three more principles that Paul lays down for us to help us know how to navigate through these differences, help us know how to uh, accept one another, to dwell together in peaceful unity in spite of the matters of conscience that might separate us. And so today we come to this sixth principle in our list and it's found in verses 13 through 20 where Paul basically tells us to determine not to destroy the work of Christ for the sake of your freedom. Or you might even say for the sake of your conscience. Determine not to destroy the work of Christ for the sake of your personal issues of conscience. Your personal issues maybe even of freedom. You can kind of pick up this whole idea of destruction and and damage and, and grief. In verse 13, Paul uses a number of words to describe the kind of impact that our attitudes can have toward other believers. In verse 13, he talks about putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of your brother. In verse 15, he talks about causing him grief and pain in his heart. Or even at the end of that verse, destroying him. Or again, down in verse 20, he talks about destroying the work of God or making another stumble. And that's the whole theme of these verses as he, as he says there, Therefore, let us not pass judgment, verse 13, on another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul wants us to understand, as he goes through this, he wants to affirm a number of times that our freedom certainly is a precious gift that God gives to us. But at the same time, that freedom can easily become a tool of the enemy a tool of Satan, if that freedom becomes focused on ourselves. And when we do that, we actually put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brother. That's a a word literally uh, means a, a rock or even some loose soil that someone might slip on in a pathway, lose their footing. But Paul's using it figuratively of a brother, a Christian, stumbling or falling in their walk with the Lord. And as we've said in the past, what he has in mind here is is a weaker brother who sees you doing something and is encouraged by your example to go out and do the same, even when they're not convinced it's the right thing to do. They're, They're tempted to follow your example and thus be racked with a guilty conscience and do violence to their conscience. I mentioned this in weeks past. Paul spells it out more clearly in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says in verse 9, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. He's describing what we would call in our own day, simple peer pressure. A a brother or sister who by your example could be encouraged to do something which violates their conscience. It's a reality that takes place all the time around us. People wanting to fit in, wanting to not stand out wanting to be accepted or whatever, and so they conform to whatever they see going on around them. And particularly, if you're maybe a respected person in the congregation, they want to conform even to your way of living. But they might begin, Paul says, doing things which they believe, still in their minds, are forbidden. And when the pain of their conscience rises, they begin to train themselves to suppress that pain, to ignore that pain, and it puts them on a dangerous pathway. It's like a spiritual game of Russian roulette. And you're teaching them to put a bullet in the chamber of that revolver and spin that chamber and pull the trigger over and over and over again. Because you're telling them, look, this, this is a blank. I mean, this time it's a blank. Your conscience is bothering you, but it's just a blank. It's not going to do anything to you. Just spin that chamber again. It's not going to bother you this time. And they're full of apprehension as they place the gun to their head over and over again. Until that time when their conscience and their anxiety rises. And it really is serious. It really is sin. At some point, they have so suppressed the natural anxiety of their conscience over and over again that when the real bullet comes, they're not ready to follow their conscience. So Paul wants us to be careful not to lead someone down that dangerous pathway. And you remember two weeks ago, I was emphasizing that, that what he's talking about here, what he's really mentioning in, in speaking of weaker brothers and sisters In 1 Corinthians 8, same same issue he's dealing with here. These are brothers and sisters, not someone who's simply irritated or bothered or annoyed about what you do with your freedoms, but someone who's likely to go out and follow your example. Someone who's likely to go out and try to conform to your standards. Someone comes along and they have their particular Bible translation they like and they begin to just pound you how you need to forsake whatever translation you have and read their translation because their translation is the right one. It's the inspired one. You don't necessarily feel the need to conform to them and throw your ESV or whatever it is out the window and go out and get whatever they say you have to read because the reality is they're not likely to get rid of their translation just because you read something else. Paul's not talking about that kind of situation where someone's trying to impose their issues of conscience on you. What he's talking about is the person who is likely to go out and violate their conscience because they're trying to adapt their lifestyle to yours. That's the weaker brother. And so he's laying down this principle of what we might call the stumbling block. Let us not... Pass judgment on the one any longer, but rather let us decide never to put a stumbling block, a hindrance in the way of your brother. You should, you should move your attitude, he says, from a a condition of condemnation to a, a one of concern. Rather than sort of this dismissive And and rejecting mentality. You ought to have concern for your brother. And there's no way for you to have concern for them. If all you really want to do is get away from them. Rid them out of your life. Get rid of them because they're an inconvenience to your freedoms. The contrast here is between this attitude of self-defense. Passing judgment on others who don't see it as clearly as you do. And the attitude of. Really, protection. Deciding never to put anything in the way of someone who may not see it as clearly as you do. So if another Christian believes some behavior is wrong or sinful, even if they're mistaken, you should never encourage that person to pursue that behavior. Because regardless of whether or not they have properly defined something as sinful, you would be training them to dangerously ignore their conscience, to dangerously suppress that sense of fear of sin. And if you are the one who's influencing them, if you're the one whose example they're trying to follow, Paul says you're creating a hindrance. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you. It'd be better for you to put a millstone around your neck, Matthew 18, and be cast into the sea. Paul makes a, this very broad statement in verse 14. Look, I, I, I know, I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. He understood freedom. He understood Jesus' words in Matthew 15. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of him. It's not the things that you eat. It's not necessarily the things that you touch. It's not even necessarily the places you go The thing which defiles you is your own heart. And the thing which is dangerous is the desires of that heart that so want to feed on the issues of the flesh. But those aren't coming from external things. There's nothing in itself that's unclean. Paul told Timothy, Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so he's he's stating as clearly as possible what the the new covenant position is. Is that that we have freedom in Christ. And he says, look, I understand that as well as anyone. But that answer didn't mean for Paul that he'd simply go out and pursue, therefore, whatever he wanted for the sake of personal enjoyment. Because he also understands In the second half of that verse, very clearly that the things he thought were clean, if it's unclean to anyone else who thinks it, then it is unclean to them. The immature person, the weak person, their conscience might be ill-informed. But even in that ill-informed state, it is unclean, he says. So you hear what Paul's saying objectively objectively, God may have no problem with whatever the issue is. We might even say biblically God may have no problem with whatever the issue is. But subjectively that weak Christian still believes that he does and therefore in his relationship with God he does. God does have a problem with it. Or another way to say this You might be right in all of your arguments about however you're behaving. You might have crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. You might have all of your arguments down. You might be right in all of the particulars of your argument and wrong in all of your response. It's possible for you to be correct in some theological point, but corrupt in the way that you use it. Getting your doctrine right is only half the battle. But using that doctrine as an instrument of destruction for your brothers is wrong. For some people, unfortunately, it's only the first half of the battle that they're interested in fighting. They're only interested in getting that issue right. And they believe as long as they have all their, their, their points together, all their points are right, that's really all they, all they ought to be concerned about. Someone told me one time, it's like a porcupine. Many fine points, but you can't get close to them. Paul says that can't be the way we are. We can't be that way. We have to be very much concerned about drawing near to our brother and sister in Christ. And so, verse 15 if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You can have all your arguments in order and still be destroying your brother because they're trying to follow the example of your walk before they're prepared in their minds. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't want to teach them to just welcome unclean things into their life because one day they'll be dealing with something that truly is unclean. And they'll have to learn again how to have a sensitive conscience and that's not always an easy process. So we have to follow this principle of love which Paul's already pointed out over and over again ever since chapter 12. And he sort of summarized it, you remember, in 13 verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to really know what God's will is? You want to really know what his law requires, here's what his love law requires. Do no harm to a brother. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Win that argument before you worry about all the others. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now don't stumble over what Paul's saying there. He's not suggesting that somehow you're going to cause that person to lose their salvation. He's not saying that you're going, to, you're going to lead them down some pathway which will eternally destroy them. But what he's saying is you can do serious damage to their spiritual progress, their spiritual growth. You could do serious damage to their conscience and their walk with the Lord. I've seen this. Unfortunately, too many times in my own life, and my own ministry, to see some unsuspecting and We might say naive brother be led down a pathway by some stronger brother used and manipulated for whatever reason and then after a while discarded along the way until they are completely demolished in their Christian walk. And they might go, I've seen people go years, two, three years, completely outside of the church because they have been so pummeled. By these other believers. Paul says in verse 16, What you regard as evil, don't let it be spoken of as evil. What you regard as good, don't let it be spoken of as evil. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. The kingdom, he says, is not going to be advanced by you winning your particular arguments about this issue or that issue, about eating and drinking or whatever it might be, the kingdom of God is not going to be spread in that way. It's going to be advanced. It's going to be spread. How? By righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your mission, my mission, is not to maximize our personal enjoyment of freedoms. Your mission and my mission is to spread this message of the kingdom And the message of the kingdom, he says, is full of these things. The kingdom of God, however, is destroyed when you forget that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look down in chapter 15. We'll get here in a moment, but this is what he says there. He says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the strength of the united body of Christ speaking with one voice what the glories of the kingdom of God is. He says, this is the kingdom of God. It's about righteousness, that is training other people to live Righteously, it's about peace. That is, learning to live at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. Not grieving the Holy Spirit by malicious and and angry communication, as he says in Ephesians 4. It is rejoicing in Him and in the fellowship of the saints. Communicating not only by what you say, but by the way you live with one another. That God is a God of reconciliation. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of peace. Of righteousness and joy. People can become so focused on these minor things and lose sight of the greater purpose within the church and within the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants us to be continually reorienting ourselves around that very thing. Makes me think this week, I, I haven't followed it closely, but someone was telling me about this, this a debate about a Christian going into a mosque and carrying on a debate with an imam about the gospel of Christ. And, and, and just this huge divide that's taking place in the, you might say, the cyber world over whether or not this was appropriate or not. And Christians lining up on either side or the other I just thought you know what joy the enemy must take in dividing Christians along those kinds of things and distracting them from the whole gospel mission that's in front of us And whether you agree or not whether a brother should do such a thing, debate within the household of worship of a pagan, idol. Whether or not you believe he should go in and do such things is a secondary issue. But love and unity with that brother in Christ and understanding that whatever he did, he did out of devotion to Christ. That's what protects the gospel message. And so he says, whoever thus serves Christ, verse 18, they serve Christ not by proving that they're right and everyone else is wrong, they thus serve Christ they they in this way serve Christ by loving their brothers and this is acceptable to God and approved by men this they're doing is the will of God they're acceptable to God they are approved by men when in verse 19 they pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding this is what God approves you're all interested in winning your arguments about what God approves and what God doesn't approve and, and who's right and, and who's wrong? Well, can you can you understand this? That what God approves is pursuing what makes for peace. Pursuing what makes for mutual upbuilding, edifying one another. And so when mature Christians voluntarily restrict their own lives to conform maybe even to the stricter standards of their weaker brothers. They're building within the body of Christ closer relationships with one another. They're strengthening the overall witness of the church and the kingdom of God is advancing. That's why Paul says in verse 20, Do not for the sake of your food destroy the work of God. God's not going to take it lightly. You understand? He's not going to take it lightly. When for whatever your particular issue is, you're dividing from some brother or sister over these minor things and doing damage to the kingdom of God. Doing damage to the preaching of the gospel. Don't destroy his work for the sake of your petty enjoyment or entertainment or eating or drinking or whatever it might be. He goes on to say in verse 20, Indeed, everything is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make a brother stumble by what he eats. Love limits its freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Now, all of that directed primarily at the strong believer. And then Paul turns now to speak not only to the strong, but also to the weak with a seventh principle In verses 21 and 22 and 23, when he tells us, Do not necessarily compromise your conscience to conform to others. Don't compromise your conscience to conform to others. For the strong, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have between yourself and God, keep it. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So don't cause your brother to stumble. But at the same time, don't bend your conscience to meet the strict demands of someone else's conscience if if it's not necessary. Keep your faith. Keep your confidence. Keep your freedom between yourself and God. Don't let yourself get dragged down into the dungeon of legalistic demands because of others. So you're, you're certainly sensitive to this issue of stumbling. You certainly don't want to put that stumbling block before someone else. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up the freedom that you understand and you believe that you have. Keep that, guard that faith that you have between yourself and God. Blessed, he says, is the one who has no reason to judge himself on what he approves. Enjoy the freedoms that God has given you. And you'll truly find the blessing of faith. If your heart and mind are unbothered by those things, then rejoice in the goodness of God, he says. But, beware. Because in verse 23, whoever, he says, has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. And whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Just know, he says, no matter which... Position you see yourself in. Just know that to press forward with some behavior, with lingering doubts in your mind, is to be condemned. And that condemnation is not only in your own mind, it, it's the Lord who even disciplines you. Because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. It is sin. Not because objectively, on the outside, it's defined by, by Scripture as, as wrong materially. But it's sinful because it's not done out of single-minded devotion to Christ. It's being done for other reasons. It's being done to conform to others. It's being done to please men. It's being done to gain stature or whatever it might be. And people make Lifestyle choices all the time for all the wrong reasons—reasons reasons other than faith, reasons other than pleasing God. They bow to the pressures of society around them. They give in to the influence of friends. They hear people around them sort of, sort of a sensationalize some lifestyle or talk up some, some uh, pursuit. And they go after that, they go even against their own conscience in order to please those other people, maybe even to please family members because they want to be accepted, they want to avoid looking strange, they want to uh, maybe avoid some possible ridicule, they don't want to be looking old-fashioned, a stick in the mud, unsophisticated, unadventurous, or whatever it might be. And they give in to all those pressures and they press forward into all kinds of things but not out of a desire to please god so if it was eating and drinking if it was watching a a, a, a certain tv show if it was watching if it was keeping a sabbath drinking a drink paul says that's great if whenever you Put that thing or set that pathway or whatever it is in front of you. And you say, I'm going to do this because my intent, my purpose is to glorify God. It's done out of devotion to Him. But if it's done out of any other reason. To bow into someone else and your conscience is bothering you. It's sin. It's sin. So he says, be on guard. Beware. Be sensitive in your conscience. Keep a tender conscience so that you do not move forward on those issues that might be displeasing to God. Guard it. Guard your devotion. Guard your commitment. Keep your faith between you and God. Whether it's freedom or whether it's restriction, keep your faith. Keep your devotion don't compromise it this of course is key even in fellowship with one another because once you begin down that pathway of denying and suppressing your conscience now suddenly you're dealing with guilt now suddenly you're dealing with shame it can even cause you to pull away from your brothers and sisters in Christ don't burden yourself trying to live by the devotion of others Guard your faith that you have between you and God. And then finally, Paul finishes up with one last principle. Really kind of where we began. But he kind of restates everything all over again when he tells us in chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, follow the focus of Christ on others. Follow the focus of Christ on others. He says in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Focus of Christ, he says, was not on his own enjoyment. It wasn't on his own pleasure. He wasn't out to please Himself, the focus was Christ, of Christ was on the benefit of us. The focus of Christ was taking upon Himself whatever burdens, whatever reproaches were necessary in order to establish peace with us. Even when we were in the wrong, even when we were enemies with God, even when we deserved ourselves to be reproached, what did He do? He took our reproaches on Himself. Don't think that giving in to the sensitivity of others is somehow incompatible with spiritual maturity. Don't think that giving in to the sensitivity of others and and showing that deference to them is somehow incompatible with spiritual maturity. In fact, it's very Christ-like. Paul's saying we should please our fellow Christians, or keep their consciences at ease because Christ set an example of not doing what pleased Himself, of enduring restriction, enduring suffering, enduring humiliation, taking on the burden of our weakness. For what purpose? To bring us closer to God. And if He was willing to suffer that kind of scorn in order to reconcile us to God, if He was willing to endure that kind of Of pain. And certainly we can limit a little of our freedom for the sake of others. It's one of the reasons why Paul says in verse 4 that we have even these gruesome details. He says these things were written in scripture. Whether it is Psalm 69 which he quotes from there in verse 3 or whether it's the gospel accounts of Christ's sufferings, the reason why we're told what Christ went through, and we're even given in the Psalms some insight into, we might say, His mental uh, frame of mind during that time. The reason we're given all of that is not only so that we can learn what Christ did for us, but we can learn how we ought to act towards one another. They're written, he says, for our exhortation and encouragement. And so in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony. Why? That together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. This is what He's concerned about. Not just freeing you so that you can express your freedoms and enjoy life or whatever it is. But teaching you. To follow in His footsteps. To deny yourself for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. You see with all the diversity of spiritual standing. All the various opinions that exist in every church. The world should still hear one united voice glorifying God. In the gospel. We shouldn't be separating out. Into all these different groups. Dividing along lines of personal convictions. And preferences. By the way that's why. Just from a footnote. That's why we have never done. A contemporary and a traditional service. That's why we don't do things like that. Instead of just separating people out. Along lines of personal preference. And, and, and uh, going along the lines of. Uh, of whatever they comfortable with we encourage people to follow the example of Christ to yield to others even in those those matters of tradition and preference so that with one voice we glorify God the Father and so in verse 7 we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you we welcome one another because of what Christ has done he bore our reproach he took our weaknesses He took what we deserved to bring us near to God. And so it gives us so much mercy and patience towards others. So much long-suffering to grow together with them because of what Christ has done. Some of you may not have ever understood that before. You might have thought that Christianity is just a bunch of rules so that you can please God. So that you can stand before Him one day and tell Him that you did certain things. You're trying to do enough to overcome His wrath and please Him when you stand before Him. But the reality is, it's really not about you doing enough to please Him. It's about you never being able to please Him, but Christ being able. It's about Jesus Christ doing enough to overcome God's wrath on your behalf. It's about Him going to the cross and taking on the shame, standing under the fury of God so that God's anger against you can be wiped away and your sins can be forgiven. That's the gospel. Not only that we preach, it's the gospel we demonstrate. That's why when you come to a place like this and you look around you and that's why you see loving community. That's why you see Christians dwelling together as they do. That's why you see what you don't see anywhere else in the world. It's because we've been transformed by that loving message and the message comes to you this morning. If you don't know Christ, if you've never understood His mercy this morning, we invite you when we close here in a moment with a song and a word of prayer, we invite you to respond to that gospel. Confess Yourself, the condemned sinner that you are under God's wrath, but receive from Christ the sacrifice, the forgiveness that comes because of His cross. We'll be closing and I'll be down here. We have other elders who are available. If you'd like to speak with someone this morning about how you can have your sins wiped away, how you can have the fury and wrath of God taken away and you can have peace with God. We'd love to spend a few moments talking to you from the Scripture about God's message of forgiveness. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this gospel, so thankful for what it has done for us, and woe to us if we ever become so calloused to it that we can't demonstrate the same grace and mercy towards one another. I pray, Father, that we would hear it and we would receive it So that we can receive and accept and welcome one another. So that we can demonstrate to others the patience and kindness of our Savior. Give us patience with those who may be weaker in some area. Give us even patience with those who seem to go beyond what we believe is the boundaries of freedom. Help us to continue to love them. To demonstrate the grace of Christ even as we discuss whatever the issues are. To come to a place of acceptance. A place of reception. A place of dwelling together in unity. Lord, we love you and we know that in the frailty and weakness of this life, we'll continue to struggle along in these things. Thankfully, not without the help of your Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would then work among us for the sake of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.